You're listening to the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM. A very good evening to you and you are very welcome to this week's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and coming up on the programme tonight, I'm looking forward to Rachel Keeley coming into the studio. Now, regular listeners will know that Rachel is our resident restaurant reviewer and she writes for Food and Wine magazine. Well, this month she's coming in to talk about her recent travels because she is a bit of a jet setter. She gets all over the world. And last year she was in the studio after she had travelled to Vietnam and she told us all about her time there. Well, this time she's been to Iran and she's going to tell us about the time she spent in Tehran and what it was like to eat and dine there and just visit it in general. So that's something to look forward to. I'll be out on my own travels, not going as far as Rachel, but I was up in Belfast recently and I had a visit to Aunt Sandra's Candy Factory, which was very exciting. And when I was there, I met Jim Moore. So you can have a little listen to our chat. And then later on in the show, Caroline Gray has a preview of the May issue of Easy Food magazine for us. That'll be just before the end of the show. And Caroline is the editor of Easy Food magazine. A reminder before we get the show underway as to how you can get in touch with me. You can drop me an email, s.noonan at live.ie or I'm on Twitter at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation. And I always love to hear from you and read your tweets. So keep them coming, please. Now, as I said, every month, Rachel Keeley from Food and Wine magazine shares details about her latest dining spot. Well, this month, we're going to travel a bit further afield and find out about her latest culinary adventure. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Rachel, you're very welcome to the studio this evening, and we're going to talk about something a bit different your latest travels, in fact, as opposed to a restaurant review, and you recently paid a visit to Iran. Yes, <laughs> and that surprise face accompanies uh, every conversation that we have about this. Uh, yes, I mean, my, my wanderlust is pretty evident from anybody who has a look at my Twitter feed. Uh, we tend to take random trips as often as we possibly can. Um, we just basically work hard all year to be able to, to go away. So the most recent trip we took, we had to go to Dubai anyway. Um, and Dubai is a great hub. You know, it connects to everywhere uh, that, that direction and, and sort of the Middle East and further. Um, so we did the old fashioned trip of taking out an atlas and seeing what was close and what could we go to see while we were over there um, and we settled on Iran and we knew it's going to become a lot more popular as a tourist destination the next couple of years because things are changing there quite rapidly uh, and like everything else we kind of wanted to get there first and to, to see it in its authentic state. I want to ask you first about the logistics And it's a good question. There. So tell us how you get there. Yeah, I mean it's a very good question. There's so little information about travelling to Iran that um, it's something I've been asked an awful lot about on Twitter and Instagram um, and because of that reason there's just no information so physically getting there uh, in terms of flights very very easy you go to Dubai and from Dubai you go to Tehran um, or you can go to Istanbul and from Istanbul to Tehran so the flight uh, costs are very very cheap we threw, we flew Azerbaijan Air and I think it was like $90 to fly from from Azerbaijan to Tehran Okay so let's start in Ireland are you going out of Shannon or Dublin? You're go- sorry you're going from Dublin because you, you can fly directly to Dubai from there 
there. Uh, you can also fly directly to Istanbul from Dublin too. Um, and again, the flight costs aren't massive if you fly at good times of the year. Um, and when you get there, then you'd connect to Tehran. And the ter- te- Dubai to Tehran, I think, is about two and a half hours. And Tehran is the capital city. Of Iran, yeah, exactly. A massive, massive city. I think there's something approaching 20 million people living there. Um, now, the visa situation is a little bit different as well. Uh, so in terms of logistics, it's probably important to, to mention that. We're one of the few countries that can get visas on arrival uh, in Iran. Uh, British citizens can't, American citizens can't. Uh, so we're lucky in that respect. Now, having said that, we had heard kind of a mixture of experiences in Tehran airports. So we just thought it would be easier if we went to the embassy in Dublin and got the visas earlier. So we did that and it was very easy. We arrived that morning, spoke to a fabulously helpful gentleman. And that afternoon, we picked up our visas straightforward. Um, you have to wear, obviously, the traditional head covering to get the visas and to get your photographs taken and all the to rest of it. To get the visas and to get mm. the photographs taken. Yeah. My goodness, yeah. yeah. I'm sure, like, I wouldn't have known that. A lot of people wouldn't wouldn't know that. You do have to research quite a bit, but again, they're so helpful in the embassy. You can you can just call them and, and discuss it with them. Um, I had heard... Uh, I, I hadn't actually heard it from anybody in the embassy, but I've just heard on sort of the grapevine that you can't have stamps, let's say, from Israel or anybody or anywhere approaching Israel um, on that. But um, we had been there and... And I was just going to say, <laughs> did we not have a conversation didn't, in the didn't past cause us any problems about you being in Israel? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was a little bit worried when we presented our passports because I'd heard horror stories of them, you know, questioning you about your movements in Jordan and things like that. Um, Israel doesn't stamp your passports anymore uh, for this reason. So there was no Israeli stamp on our passports, but there was only one Jordanian stamp, which kind of gives the game away. It means you crossed over by land, um, but they didn't pay any attention straight through. And of course, one of the big things about doing all this travel is to get your passport stamped. I like know. we like to get the stamp on it, especially if you've been somewhere different and you travel a yeah. lot. It's it's just I suppose it's just a pragmatic decision they made in Israel. They just give you slips of paper, essentially they stamp those slips of paper. They're important to keep them on you, obviously, while you're moving around the country and exiting. But um, it, it can cause difficulty. I know for travelling to Lebanon and um, Syria uh, which I won't be going to just yet I don't think um, and obviously Iran so uh, but we had no problems it was all very very easy and everyone was incredibly helpful and uh, we had no issues when you come in on the, air, on the airplane all right um, the moment you land you have to start donning the headscarf and um, you know over, overly uh, enthusiastic PDAs or anything like that you just have to kind of get in the in the mindset of a different country and different culture What are they like towards women because you have to wear the headdress I think that immediately immediately conjures up for me a notion that women aren't held in the same regard as men are. Yeah, and, and it's a good question. It's one that, that I was quite interested in exploring while I was over there because like you, when you can only sort of, um, you know, make presumptions based on images and uh, immediate reactions to, to a woman having to dress a certain way, um, it does lead you down one train of thought. What I would say is that the people I spoke to, and we spoke to an awful lot of people, they are the most incredibly friendly uh, people I've ever encountered in my life I thought Cubans were friendly this is nothing compared to Iranian people or Persian people they were walking up to us in the street and shaking our hands and thanking us for coming and wanting to come back to invite us back to their houses and to hear where we come from and what we think of their country and in many cases to tell us that they don't agree with the regime and the regime doesn't represent them which I thought was very interesting Uh, what we see on CNN or what we see on Sky News they were very much at pains to explain isn't them so they're they're Persians um, and they're constantly telling us it's very different to at the Arab tradition so um, you, you, a lot of the women just wear the basic headscarf and it's loosely wrapped around their heads um, so it's not like when you go to Saudi Arabia or you go to um, many, many parts of the UAE where a lot of the women would uh, cover up entirely you only have to wear the chador when you go into 
mosques. So um, it's 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 not as um, all encompassing as some of the the other Middle Eastern countries. Um, and generally speaking. Everyone was incredibly educated. Women are educated at the same level as men. Um, they do have women-only carriages, but I got the impression that was more safety aspect uh, on the metro um, than a deliberate sort of deliberately restricting uh, ones. So, for example, women could sit in any carriage they wanted, but men weren't allowed in the women-only carriage. So while initially I was going, jeepers, this is very, uh, you know, it's, I don't like segregation of any kind, then I came to realise that it was an option. It wasn't something that was put in place. It was, it was a decision that people could take one way or the other. You mentioned there about people inviting you back to mm. their homes. Did you take anybody up on their invitation? We couldn't. We didn't have time, um, unfortunately. They, they all wanted us, and traffic in Tehran is just bananas. I thought I saw crazy traffic and crazy driving in Jordan, but it's nothing compared to these guys. They, when it gets busy, they just sort of take over slip roads onto motorways and drive the wrong way up and force everyone else to turn around. So the, the direction of traffic is constantly fluctuating and changing. So roundabouts, nobody really follows one direction. They just kind of enter it and go whichever way they want to. So um, we, we wouldn't have taken, we wouldn't have asked somebody to travel sort of like two hours out to their house, you know, to collect us and bring us back or anything like that. Um, so we couldn't unfortunately take them up on it but we had some really interesting conversations and learned an awful lot about the people as opposed to the government. We must talk a bit about the food now and the cuisine yes. Middle Eastern cuisine obviously has a great reputation so what, sort of, so, yeah. what sort of foods did you get to enjoy when you were there? And well, We were very lucky, we arrived um, quite accidentally uh, I'd love to tell you it was on purpose but we hadn't a clue, we arrived at Novrus which is the New Year celebration, it's a huge celebration in Iran, it takes seven days in fact this year was seven days of celebration which meant that we really got to see sort of the culture at its best uh, really exposed so families were out in the streets enjoying uh, markets and um, you know, presentations and traditional uh, presentations and arrangements on the table of the Haftzi which is a way of celebrating the new year the Persian new year so we got to see an awful lot and, and experience a lot in terms of food um, so we went to the Grand Bazaar which is one major place that every foodie has to go to um, unfortunately some of it was closed because of uh, new year so they take that as a time to sort of clean up businesses and make any repairs that are necessary but we, there was still plenty going on there it's 1700 years old it's an incredibly old marketplace um, would have been obviously a site of the old Silk Road so a real mixture of cultures and a real mixture of heritages there the market like every Middle Eastern market was full of dates and nuts they're beginning to saffron scented pistachios for example and then dried preserved fruits such as soured apricots and these wincingly tart mulberries they're so sweet um, and then sheets of flat fig uh, which was interesting it really showed me how they literally get the fig <laughs> into the fig rolls um, then uh, people go around eating flatbreads with meat and cheese toppings there would be live animals and not so live animals um, at the market so it was it was a, a very invigorating and almost overwhelming space uh, in terms of sights and scents and sounds So did you you enjoy any street food when you were there? Absolutely. Uh, and we pretty much do it everywhere we go. Um, we kind of throw caution to the wind and pack some atelium and just go, yeah. <laughs> go for it. I just want to say that. Yeah. But it's kind of different though. Everywhere um, that we went to in Iran and indeed in much many parts of the Middle East um, were scrupulously clean. So I've been to parts of Asia where you're kind of going, oh God, and you're crossing yourselves before you, you eat something. But we weren't as worried here. Um, they, they have kebab is, is a massive staple food over there, but it's not like the kebab we have here 
it's not some greasy sweaty quasi meat that's just scraped into a bun and layered with ketchup and handed to you at four o'clock in the morning it's completely different over there and um, so it's moist flavour some lamb uh, a lot of the time it's lamb some beef um, they just slice it off the, the lovely turns uh, the, the spits that they have put it into some fresh hot bread the bread over there is amazing um, layer on some mint scented sauces some vividly green salad and present it to you in a piece of tinfoil and it's about 80 cent or a euro so cheap so so cheap um, you could pick up like a, a cup of doog as well alongside it which is sort of like a savoury yoghurt type drink uh, seasoned with mint and you've got a fabulous picnic they're big into the picnics over there as families so it's great to be able to sit down and sort of join them and have a chat with your street food everywhere you ate was it all very reasonably priced very much so um, I, I mean a really sort of like slap up meal we went to for example uh, Milad Tower which is uh, one of the, the major architectural focuses of the of, of Tehran it's the sixth or seventh tallest building in the world or tower in the world um, and that would be very very high end they have a revolving restaurant up at the very very top much like many other cities and that's sort of considered extremely high end uh, and the tickets there everyone told us were enormously expensive so we kind of handed over our money with trepidation and everything is in massive amounts so 500,000 rials or 14 euro for example um, so you end up counting out millions being hopelessly confused um, but the that slap up meal was 80 euro per person so and was it worth it was it compared to what you're getting on the street there for 80 cents um, well the food was great what was brilliant about it was that it was a buffet so we got to taste every type of Persian food up there and buffet isn't the same as it is here buffet is very well respected over there because the idea is that you're tasting lots of different things and it's also freshly presented and consumed so quickly that you don't get that sort of stagnancy that you get in a lot of buffets over here with something sitting in a bain-marie for hours um, so it's uh, it was a great way for us in particular as tourists to be able to taste everything and the food was great but I would agree with you I think the street food was nicer I often think you see places like that they're so touristy that you're not getting you're not just not okay they might say it's very high end but you're just not getting the same level of quality as you would down the street really I think so there was just that that without sounding um, sort of uh, trite about it you didn't have that love and attention you know and you do miss that that individual connection to the food that you get from the guy on the street uh, for whom this is his whole life every day seven days a week for the last 20-30 years you know How long were you there for? We were actually only there for four day, four nights five days so we didn't And in terms of hotels then is, are there lots of just the, like the Hilton type hotels or where do you stay when you go? No the Hilton doesn't exist over there um, or indeed any any American chain or indeed any chain really um, they're just not set up for tourism because um, you know since the revolution 1979 travelling there has been a little bit more complicated um, they, they were under embargoes for years so they're, they don't have access to a lot of the sort of um, the things we take for granted I suppose in western societies in terms of uh, tourism and hotels and things like that also uh, a lot of things are limited so in, a lot of internet access is limited by the regime as well so the, for example um, limited Twitter, no Facebook. Um, a lot of sites are banned, uh, and your your emails and things that are monitored anyway. Um, so finding a hotel was not easy. We ended up doing it via TripAdvisor. That was the only way because there are no hotels in Booking.com, for example, no hotels in Hotels.com, nothing like that. I don't believe they have access to those sites. 
um, so they can't advertise there um, so we found one there and it was fabulous it's called Hotel Ascan and uh, I'll be writing about this at some point on the blog because there's so much information to, to, to tell but um, it was great it was one it would be considered one of the higher end hotels there um, it was what we would call maybe a comfortable three star and it was 80 euro a night the people were incredibly helpful there and it was really, really central it was around the corner from the US Embassy which was always interesting to have a look at So how did you book it? You couldn't book it online did it you was, phone them or did you just turn up and hope they had a bed? Well we were going to do that but the gentleman at the Embassy um, told us it's Novarus you'd have to be insane you might have to sleep in the street you don't make a booking so we were glad to get that advice so we emailed them um, which was a bit of a comedy of errors but eventually we got there it was sort of like going back in time they they a lot of trust uh, they said no problem we'll keep a room for you and of course me being me I was like but don't you want credit card details or something and they're like no no we'll see you then you know um, you'd nearly feel better giving them a credit exactly, card detail exactly. because at least when you turn up it's like but I gave you my credit card details I have a, a proper booking exactly exactly but there's just there, there isn't really that um, there's just no tradition of sort of hotels or tourism not yet it will change but not yet it's very very new and you do sort of need a hotel as well there, are a lot of, there is a Swiss company that does a sort of Airbnb out of Tehran um, but you kind of initially need for the first trip anyway you need a concierge to be able to write things in Farsi for you and things like that Well it sounds great and I look forward now to your piece about it whenever you write it it'll be on the blog you say Yep on rmkeely.com Fantastic we look forward to that and thanks for coming in tonight to share that with us because it is all incredibly interesting as are all your travels <laughs> and we will talk again soon We will indeed Thanks Sharon you're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste with me, Sharon Noonan. Good to talk to Rachel in the studio. And if you have been lucky enough to visit an exotic location and have news to share about its culinary delights, please do drop me the emails. I'd love to hear all about it. s.noonan at live.ie. And you never know, we might get you in to the studio here and you can tell us about it all in person. Don't be shy now. We'd love to have you. And still to come tonight, Caroline Gray has a preview of the May issue of Easy Food magazine for us. That'll be just before the end of the show. Now, though, it's time for me to share some news from my travels. Unfortunately, I didn't get to to go away somewhere exotic on a plane like Rachel, but I'm always very happy to take a spin up to the north. And on this occasion, it was to Belfast because I'm currently making a radio documentary about Devlin's Yellow Man. I am a Devlin by birth, and whenever I was growing up, my family used to make this toffee-type sweet. It was made from a secret recipe that my grandmother and my great-aunt imparted to me, so I'm making a documentary about that. You'll have to listen out for that. And as I was doing some of the recordings in Belfast, I chanced upon Aunt Sandra's candy factory, and sure, it would have been very rude of me not to call in and chat to Jim Moore and have a bit of a, well, it was a bit of a Willy Wonka experience. Let's have a listen. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Jim, we're here in Aunt Sandra's candy factory in the Castlereagh Road in Belfast. Tell us how it all began. Oh, uh, well, well, with me, it probably it began with a dream because I used to go into my uncle's shop uh, on the Albert Bridge Road and I couldn't believe the colours and the flavours and the smells and the tastes. And, and I always said that if ever, because I've always sort of been in business when I started, left school, if there ever was an opportunity, I would love to keep it going. And it was a shock when I heard that my, my uncle had retired and he sold the equipment and he sold the business. 
and Sandra, my aunt, was working somewhere else. Uh, and I actually tried to buy the equipment back from the chap that bought it. And believe it or not, the chap that bought it was Maud's ice cream. And, and through buying the equipment, I phoned him up and he wouldn't sell it, obviously. What sort of year are we talking about oh, now? Oh, this was... Because Maud's ice cream isn't going that long. No, no, but this is... This is it was probably in, in probably the 70s, I would say. And what were you working at yourself then? Well, I, I was um, uh, in electrical retail. I was a manager for Comet and different companies like that there. And um, like an area manager and a store manager. And as I say, when I heard about it, by that stage I had left the electrical trade and we'd open up a spa on the Castlereagh Road. And um, I was shocked when I heard, and I phoned up anyway, but he, he wouldn't sell it. And I actually phoned him exactly a year later to the day, because I wrote it in my diary that the day that phoned him. And I said, you won't remember me, but a year ago today, I phoned you because you bought my uncle's, and I would really would like to try to buy it back, because I want to try to get it going again. I want to try to keep the, the tradition alive. And he says, yes, come and take it, he says, because you can have it for the price I paid for it. He says, because the only thing I was ever able to make was honeycomb. But Honeycomb made him a millionaire because he was the first one to start the Pooh Bear ice cream. And it, but good luck to him. You know, I think the, the man's dead now. I think he passed away. It's his son now. So you got the uh, you got the, you got the machinery back, and what was the next step? We got it back, but we didn't know what to do with it. Um, what sort of machines were uh, what basically equipment? Basically, all those slabs. See the slabs that you see now, the big metal slabs, which are really heavy. to get lorries to lift them, and uh, the, the little machine. I haven't showed you. I must show you the machine that makes the sweets and a few other bits and pieces and pots and so on. Nothing really that elaborate, just old things that people wouldn't even use probably today. But to me, there were so many memories and so much history in them. And then we heard that Sandra was, had went to work somewhere else and we approached her and said, would you like to work for us? Again, I told her, no, she was working for us. And she said again, why don't you try? And that's, so we did, because people were asking her. And then we converted the back of the shop and started making the sweets. So you had a sweet shop of sorts? It went as far, actually. Oh, but, but, okay. but it was a, a good extended bit at the back, and we made sweets there. And then we moved it to here about probably 30 years ago, maybe. And um, 25, anyway. Tell us about the range of sweets, because it is really very extensive, and the old-fashioned sweets are very much back in vogue at the moment. Yes, well, well we would make from, from Iron Brew... Sweets to um, clove rock, rhubarb rock, the honeycomb, the yellow man, um, brandy drops, um, cough sweets. We make uh, sherbet lemon, strawberry sherbet, uh, you name it, it just goes on and I'll make rock. We make um, fudge, make our own fudge, make Irish cream fudge, make chocolate fudge, make the old traditional Belfast fudge. And what would be the most popular out of all of those? Um, the, the, the Belfast fudge, which is an old traditional crumbly fudge, you know, like not the, the soft nonsense that they're making nowadays and machines and so on. And and also the macaroon. We make the traditional macaroon. It's absolutely beautiful. It's We use a fondant and then we lace it with vanilla. We dip it in a, a Belgian milk chocolate and then we, we drizzle it with coconut. And it's just, and we make it with raspberry and all different flavours and so You'll on. You'll have to give me one of those yes, before I go. Yes, you can. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> delicious. It's really nice, really nice. And um, so it, it, we, we moved it down to here and it's just grown over the years. And everything is made by hand. We make all, all our boiled sweets are handmade. 
Um, it's such, such a range it, it goes on. For, well, we can make it. We made one time for somebody. We made um, um, the Ulster Fry in a sweet, and you could taste the bacon and the <laughs> no way. It's just all different flavors put into it, and it, it's all about flavors and just textures and stuff. You know? it, it is a bit Willy Wonka like here. It's a bit magic because you can make whatever. You, we used to do to trick people. We 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 would make um, say a strawberry color, but make an apple flavor, and so. It really does play with your mind, you know. That the, the, these, I can. This is wrong, but it was just just for a bit of fun. We make all types of lollies. We make the the shamrock lollies, and um, we sell them all over the place. Um, uh, we make bunny lollies. We make heart lollies, and these are all in any colour you want. Basically, we make things for weddings, for wedding favours. Where they say we want pink, we want pink and orange, or we want pink and white, or we do that. And you were telling me earlier that you would have people here to visit the factory and hen parties, common school tours. We have all different, We, you name it, the way they've been or they come. We've, we've had, um, uh, I say, but the church groups come, the girls, girls brigade come, the boys brigade, scouts, uh, schools, children with learning difficulties, sick children sometimes, they bring them over, which is very sad but it's nice to see them smile and pensioners uh, all different we mix the schools we try to get schools with different religions to come to sort of try to get rid of the nonsense that we have and whenever they come then is it a case of you give them a little talk about the history of it and then they can see something being made whenever they come we have uh, have screens up have special lights like light different coloured lights we, we dress up as Willy Wonka's cousin. We have the top hat, the waistcoat, the big long purple coat, the cane, the goggles. And the, the, whenever they come into the shop, whenever we're doing the shows, everybody's given the magic ticket. And they're told not to bend it, not to lose it, and not to eat it, because they need it for going through the magic door at the end. And then we tell them there's somebody special that's just flown in from America to do the show, and Willy Wonka arrives and has a bit of fun with them, and then brings them into here. This is all seated. And... Um, we start the show and everything's made in front of them on that table and they also see things in the video and every single person everything we make we give away free and there's also a quiz based on the history and every person in the room adults, children, pensioners win a prize so everybody gets it and then they all go through the magic door into the wee factory pit and they see the honeycomb and stuff being made so it's, it's a good crack You have such a passion for it where do you <laughs> think that it. came from? I think I think by Seeing my uncle, or as I call him, my uncle, he wasn't really my uncle, but seeing Willie Dunn making the things, and just the colours and the smells, it just came out of, this was just suddenly, it was a clear see-through piece of liquid, and suddenly it was becoming yellow and blue and green, and, and then all the raspberries and the strawberries and all the flavours were coming through, and then it was made into shapes, made into candy canes, it was made into... And it's endless. It's just, it's just every day's different. So he passed on that knowledge and expertise to you. The more well, that you didn't go and work for him, you pursued no, a different what, career. What happened was we, we had to we had to go and learn most of it. Believe it or not, because unfortunately Willie had retired and he didn't last very long after he retired. And by the time we got the equipment, um, but he, he wasn't really with us. For, or he wasn't. He was with us, but wasn't. If you know what I mean. And so David, my brother, he went over to England and learned a lot of things and, and we read a lot of books and we experimented and we got it wrong and burnt things to the, the slabs and, but eventually got there and um, with the help of Sandra and, 
and experimenting. But it's changed a lot. We, we, we make an awful lot of different things now than what we made then, you know. The the old fashioned sweets then are they? I mean, they say not. There's not many sweets good for you. There's probably no sweets good for you. But sure, look, we all need a treat now and again. But a lot of the modern sweets are full of so many artificial yeah. colourings and e numbers, and it's they're not good for children to have. So are these natural sweets that are we, the better option? We try. Unfortunately, not every every sweet can have a natural colour. Because some of the colours, well, we have found that some of the colours anyway don't look right or don't look good. They actually look dirty, if that makes any sense. Some of the reds can look like a, a dark brown. Uh, so there is still a few, but most of them would be all natural, natural colours and natural flavours. The honeycomb, for instance, and the yellow marble, honeycomb anyway, there's no artificial colours or preservatives or anything in it. It's just, it's all, it's all natural, you know. Um, we try our best to make them as natural as possible. But it's impossible to make all of them, you know. You've great plans now for the next 12 months. You're expanding. Tell us about that. It's a bit, bit scary. We, we, I'm about to retire. I retire at the end of this month. So I don't retire, but I'm 65 at the end of this month. And my wife thinks I'm crazy. that We've just taken on a big, big development. It's just five shops beside us. They're, they're virtually derelict, so we've had to spend a lot of money just even getting it into order before we even start. Our idea is that we want to make the, the, the show area bigger so that more people can come. There's some schools that um, are having to bring half the, half the school and then the other half. Because we can only take maybe 30 or 40 at a time. They maybe want to bring 100. So we're, we're hoping that we're making it bigger, they can do that. Although we've solved that problem because we now go to the schools. So it means that they don't have to have the disruption. Uh, in, in, the, in, in the five shops, we're putting... Um, a big production area at the back but it's going to be a big window and people can come in tourists can come in, schools can come in even if they want to go to the show they can buy an ice cream and they can just lean in the pole and watch them pouring the honeycomb or making the yellow man or mixing the chocolates or whatever they happen to be doing um, there's a coffee house going into it uh, we're trying to make it a bit magical again we're, although we're trying to keep it we want to make sure we keep it as it was, the tradition uh, so we want to try to make it still old-fashioned. We don't want to change that. But we also want it to be more magical. So there's a lot of things we have planned for where we do the shows, where it's going to be like all pipes going around the ceilings and walls and all white and yellow and coloured lights and steam coming out of them. It's not steam, but, you know, like, to make it look like the Willy Wonka-type factory, you know. So. What year was it that your Uncle Willie started it? I think it was the 40s. In the 40s. In the 40s. So you'd be coming up to, what, 90 or 80 years. Mm-hmm. Sharon tries to do some calculations <laughs> well, here in her well, head. We've always said, um, we've been going from... We're, because he, he wasn't my uncle, I was always frightened to li- link it completely. You know, okay. In case he got into some trouble. I don't think we ever would, because every single show we mention Uncle Willie, and we mention Sandra, and we always make sure that the history of the whole thing's put through because it's so important to us. But you're also frightened if somebody sends somewhere on the line, hold on a minute. You know? And what is your your official first year then? Uh, 53. 53. 53. Because that's that's when Sandra sort of, you would say, sort of came into it. And then um, then we, we would come in about 84. You know, but so that's taking it from a natural, a natural aunt, a, a relation through. I would love to have said 1940, but... It would, wouldn't really be true because it was a totally different business, if you know what I mean. So. 
Well, listen, thanks so much for talking to me. I'm dying to go in now. It sounds like they've stopped making what they were making there, and I'm really interested to try these macro rooms. You're very welcome, yes, definitely. One last thing, if you, if you know, we've had a lot of people here. We've had the Harry Bikers here. They came, to, funny enough, to learn how to make Yellow Man. No way. That's it, yeah. yeah. They're, they're, that's the Yellow Man they hold. That's my brother. And... Um, they, they couldn't make or didn't know how to make Yellow Man properly, wow. so they came here to make yeah. it. And did they film that and have it on TV? Yes, it was on television, yeah. It's, um, so they had it. And then we, we met, we were asked to go and, and do a bit of a talk. Uh, it was Johnny and the Chocolate Factory, do you remember the, the movie? Of course, yeah. The Loved Gene, it, Gene yeah. Wilder yeah, one? Yeah, the original one, always the best. Well, apparently it, it was either it was either 30 years or 40 years ago it was made, believe it or not, which wow. is hard to believe. Yeah. And we were asked to go and do a talk and what have you, we did. And afterwards, we were sitting, and this girl came up to us and says, do you know who I am? And brother said, no. He says, I'm Veruca Salt. No way. He says, I don't believe you. He says, we've been playing your, that movie for the last 25 years on a loop in the shop. And we, we, he talked to her for about two in the morning, and he told her all about her shop, what we were doing, and she told, us all about the, or told him all about the, 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 the movie and the, the making of it and the kids and different things. But about two weeks after it, he got an email saying, um, I really enjoyed my time in Belfast and I really enjoyed talking to you and what you're doing. And I'm going to send you something that's been on my wall for the past 30 stroke 40 years because I think it would be good for the kids to see. And she sent us her original magic ticket from the movie. That's it over there on the wall, see at the top. It's framed, is it? It's framed, it's oh, signed yes. with Gene Wilder. And then this is a, a certificate she got. And then this is a photograph from her, with her, Jean Wilder, Roy Kennard, and the same with the three of them. But that's probably the prize possession, the last one. Uh, apparently there was only six given out, and it was um, one to each of the children and one to Jean Wilder. And they were all asked to sign it. So the signatures of every one of them is on that photograph. And she gave you all that memorabilia. Unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. I don't know whether maybe she has no children because you would have kept it probably. But it's a wonderful gift, and we, we treasure it. And all the children pointed out to all the children when they come in, and you know, sort of, and they all know Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. So, well, listen, I'm very excited to come back whenever you've all the the redevelopment on. And until then, thanks again for You're your time. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming. Down. You're listening to the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to the best possible taste with me, Sharon Noonan. Just before the break, I was out and about visiting Aunt Sandra's Candy Factory. And that was up in Belfast. And gosh, you want to see the loot I came home with. I had a very happy husband, had to hide it from the children. And at the start of the show, Rachel Keeley was here talking about her latest culinary adventure, which was to Tehran in Iran. Now, she also visited a few other countries whenever she was in that neck of the woods. And we're going to hear about those in a future programme. If you're just joining us and you want to have a listen to the start of the show, it will be up on the podcast later in the week and you'll find it on soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show. Or you can subscribe free of charge and download it on iTunes. Or if you've got the little podcast app on your iPhone or your iPad, you can you can listen to it through that as well, which is great. Time now for the last interview of the evening and it's over on the phone where Caroline Gray, editor of Easy Food magazine, is waiting to tell us all about the May issue, which is out today. 
Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Good evening, Caroline. How are you keeping? Very good. Thanks so much for having me. And today is always a great day for you because Easy Food magazine is out today on the shelves. It is. It's our May issue, so packed with really great, seasonal, fresh, delicious recipes. Well, I have had a little bit of a sneak peek here at the contents. I haven't gone through the magazine in detail, but there's one item that just jumps out at me, and it's to do with wine. Oh, yes. It's, <laughs> we have a great, we have um, a nice feature in this issue about tasting wine. So, you know, what we're trying to do is just make all these little things about wine, like, oh, there's so much to learn about it. So we're, we've divided up nearly all of our information on wine into little features that people can kind of easily digest, if you will. So this month's feature is all about how to distinguish aromas and flavors and what it really means to taste wine so it's definitely something to kind of get tucked into. Last week we had our resident wine guru Ron Forrestal in the studio and he was talking about wine pairings and what goes well with what so hopefully now the the article in the magazine yeah. this month will just reinforce everything that he has That's said. That's it. That's it. It's all just constant learning isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Very hard to remember it all though whenever you're out sometimes. <laughs> That's the thing. It's just little tips and tricks I suppose to keep in mind but either way you're going to have a good time with it so (laughs) the other item that looks quite interesting this month is the basics of food styling because they do say that we eat with our eyes and everything Mm -hmm. that all the pictures and images in easy food magazine every month are, are just so appealing it is it really is so it's you know we have in the Easy Food offices, we have our own test kitchen, and with that, um, our resident uh, recipe tester and food stylist, Charisse, always has the best tips for really making plates of food just look amazing. So she's the one that once the food is cooked, she makes it look absolutely gorgeous, and that's what's photographed for the magazine. So in this issue, we have her first column, and she's really sharing some super simple tips, just little things you can do that, you know, it's not necessarily that you're going to be taking images for, you know, a magazine or a cookbook, but just things to make your plate of food look its absolute best. So picking the right ingredients, you know, keeping an eye out for certain textiles or plates, and then just little things like sprucing up the plate before you serve it. So it's a really fun read, and it's something different that we haven't had before, but I think people are really going to enjoy it. And I'm sure you'd love some of the readers then to take the odd picture and tweet it to you. Exactly. Like, that's the thing we would love to see. You know, our readers are always sending us photos of things they've cooked from the magazine or just their own creations and posting them on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. So it'd be really fun to see them, you know, kind of take some of her tips on board. And it is something that people ask about all the time and they're really intrigued over. So, yeah, I'm really excited to see kind of some of the feedback from it. On television at the moment, we're kind of being inundated with programs that are telling us to watch what we eat and do we know what we're eating, how much sugar, for example, are in some of the the processed foods that we buy. And you have a make it healthy section there. So you have free from dinners and free from desserts. What can we expect from those two pieces? So these two pieces, it's actually we're it's we've divided kind of one big mega section that's all about recipes that are free from both gluten and dairy. So we're not getting into all of the allergens necessarily, but we've noticed that a lot of readers write in, and if they do have a gluten intolerance or if they're lactose intolerant and they can't have dairy products, um, usually it's quite often that one goes hand-in-hand with the other. So whereas we'll often have dairy-free recipes or gluten-free recipes, we have a big 13-page feature now full of dinners and desserts that are free from both gluten and dairy. 
So it's just really nice to know that, you know, people that are often looking for recipes like this, they don't really have to tweak them anymore or, you know, wonder if it's going to be safe or not. You know, they're completely good to go. I think people might wonder, oh, how can you make a nice dessert if um, if there's if there's no dairy or no gluten in yeah, it? Yeah, that's the thing. And you know what? It's one of these things, especially this time of year, you know, we're looking for things that are even a bit lighter. So we have a lot of great, um, you know, using things like really fresh fruits and just really kind of natural ingredients. They don't have to be, you know, laden. It doesn't have to be like a heavy cake or, you know, a really super rich ice cream. There are some really sweet, fulfilling things that you really don't have to get into the gluten or dairy at all. And I know when we were testing them, you know, even in the office, people were eating and they're saying, gosh, this is a great dessert. And it wasn't until they were told it was actually part of the, you know, gluten-free, dairy-free feature that they even thought about that, you know, they didn't think anything was missing necessarily, which is great when you have recipes like these. And you also always have a section dedicated to the younger cooks. We do. What's in this month for them? So we have uh, some kind of fun things in the kids' kitchen section this month. You know, we always have our Easy Juniors feature, which is a really nice kind of step-by-step recipe. And in this month, it's um, these fun little frozen yogurt dots. So they're almost like little mini homemade ice cream pieces in a way. Um, And then we also have a really cool feature on a big circus party. Um, You know, so if you wanted to host, we know that, you know, parents will often write in asking for ideas on, you know, my child wants to have a birthday party at home. What can I do? How can I decorate? What treats can I serve? So we've done birthday themes in the past, but this one's going to be really cool because it's all circus themed. So we have a really fun cake, some cool decorating ideas, tons of step-by-step pictures. So even though you're putting on an entire birthday party, we're kind of with you the whole way and we're showing you exactly what to do and how to put it together and some fun decorating ideas as well. So it's, it's a few pages and it totally has an entire day of fun covered. You also have advice about how to take care of your fridge and freezer. I suppose that involves yes. a bit of cleaning. It does. So we are totally getting into spring cleaning, and that's part of our uh, home ec section. So um, one of our great home ec teachers wrote in and just gave some super helpful advice on the best way to start cleaning your cupboards and your fridge, and then as well some natural disinfectants. So using things like bicarbonate of soda and vinegar and fresh lemons, you know, those can really go a long way, especially when you don't want to be using a lot of, say, abrasive chemicals cleaning your kitchen out. So it's a really handy one-page feature. It's actually great to just tear out and you can pop on your fridge and just have it there for even, you know, when it comes time to it again next year. Tell us what your favorite recipe is in this month's issue. Oh, it's a tough one, but I have to say one of my favorite features of all time is in this issue. So we've done um, a feature called Top It Off, and, you know, we kind of will have one basic recipe and use different fillings or toppings. And this issue we have, um, we've done donuts. Now, it's something that I'm a big donut fan. I do have a sweet tooth, but I must say when we put these donuts out, we have uh, six different fillings for them. So we have donuts with, you know, just simple like Nutella and then one with custard and jam, one that has this really cool um, like Oreo cookie cream filling, and then even the savory one that has uh, crumbled bacon and like a maple whiskey glaze. I'm telling you, these donuts flew out of the test kitchen when they were put out for everybody to try. So I don't know if I could pick a favorite between them, but this feature on making your own donuts at home is just amazing. 
this year you're having guest editors each month mm-hmm. and you've you've really landed a coup this month. Tell us who the guest yeah. editor is. So we have John Tarode and he's from, uh, he's one of the judges on MasterChef UK. So he has shared some really amazing recipes with us this month and just really cool tips because obviously he's such an accomplished chef and restaurateur and he has a great uh, career on television and a lot of cookbooks. But I think something that people don't realize about him is, you know, he doesn't cook these necessarily really high-end meals, and it's not like he's judging every little thing, you know, when he's cooking at home. So he's sharing recipes with us from his latest cookbook, and it's all recipes that he cooks at home for his family and friends, and it's the food he loves the best. So, you know, it's a really homey type of uh, roast chicken and gravy with, you know, his grandma's famous uh, gravy and stuffing. Um, You know, he has a pulled pork belly in there. There's some re- these recipes that you would absolutely love to cook for family and friends. Um, and then as well, throughout the issue, you know, he gives his tips on how to, you know, kind of elevate dishes to the next level. And it's all about just buying good ingredients and, you know, taking your time. And he'll even say in here, you know, you don't have to cook a recipe. Um, you know, some nights you do want to get a takeout, and it's all about just doing what makes you happy with it. So he's been such a fabulous guest editor, and I'm really excited to see kind of, uh, you know, people recreating his dishes at home, you know, master chef approved. Well, you're talking about nice homely dinners and you yourself, you're a regular contributor now to Saturday AM. Yeah, yeah. So that's it. That's just been so fun. You know, I go on uh, every few weeks or about it once a month onto TV3 Saturday AM and just kind of cook a couple recipes or, you know, a recipe or two from each issue there. So you know, we've had a lot of fun doing that. And it's great because then it kind of brings easy food even to a broader audience and people can kind of see the recipes in action and see exactly just how easy they are. And it is always a nice homely recipe that you do. It it definitely is. I mean, you know, back in April, I did the cover recipe, which was kind of a twist on spag ball, but it was using kind of pulled beef. And it's so fun because it's, you know, everybody knows Spagball and everybody knows kind of these recipes that you cook time and time again, but seeing a bit of a twist on it. And then, you know, I even got an email from one of the producers uh, shortly thereafter. And he was like, I'm definitely trying that myself at home. Like genuinely, I can't wait to make it. You know, it's these things that people, they're always really easy recipes and they're always going to be things that, you know, you can see it on a Saturday morning and be like, yeah, you know, I'm definitely, I'm going to try that this week. I'm going to want to cook that. And you know, if they pick up easy food and can see it there too, then even better. I'm dying to know if the TV crew descend on you as soon as, as they can <laughs> to get a you spoonful be- oh, of it. Or do you have to bring like a super big pot <laughs> of stuff to share with everybody? I, I learned after the first few times to make sure to bring enough for the for everybody, for the crew, the presenters. I mean, they're absolutely hilarious in that they'll literally like if they're on the camera filming part of the scene, they might run over and grab a bite and run back to it. I mean, there are there's never any left. Leftovers, I'd say so. definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember what program I saw one time and one of the cameramen, you could see the fork. They they did a shot of him and there was a fork sticking out of his back pocket. Do they bring their own cutlery and spoons with them? They nearly do. It's it's so funny. I mean, they somebody will come in with just a whole like you know fistful of forks and everything I think one of the crew members the last time was just using a spatula to dig out and this was spaghetti do you know what I mean this isn't like a super easy thing to just pick up with your hand but nothing stops them to be fair I mean they're at this crew they're at the studio from you know crazy early hours and that's probably the first thing they're eating for the day so you know a nice bag ball for breakfast what's wrong with that yeah lovely <laughs> delicious <laughs> yeah <laughs> alright Caroline good to talk to you as always that's the May issue of Easy Food magazine it's yeah. out today on the shelves yep. 
advice from all good news agents and the usual outlets. So hopefully the listeners will go out and pick up a copy this week. Definitely do. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you again next month. All right. See you. Thanks. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Sadly, that brings us to the end of tonight's show, which will be up on the podcast later in the week. Soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show or subscribe to it free of charge on iTunes or use the podcast app I was telling you about before. Thanks so much for your company and to all of this evening's guests, Rachel Keeley, Jim Moore and Caroline Gray. Until next week, when I'll be talking to Sinead Hennessy from Fulcher, Ireland about the Food Champions Initiative. Sounds interesting. Bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit.